You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Days and convicted. Blue party radio. Show King. The devil's advocate. The projection booth. Awful flips. Pod Support for the Projection Booth podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. The star of Pink Flamingos is here again. It's divine. She's got balls, and she's got female trouble. I'm a thief and a shit kicker, and uh, I'd like to be famous. Dawn Davenport is eating a meatball sandwich right out in class. Here she is, divine as Dawn Davenport, a feisty young high school girl. My parents are going to be real sorry if I don't get them cha-cha heels. Nice girls don't wear cha-cha heels. Give those trips down. Never wear those ugly shoes. I told you to come out. Yes, she had a lot of problems. And she found herself in big female trouble. I just wanted to tell you that I'm pregnant and I want money. Baby, just because you got them big udders don't mean you're something special. It's hard being a loving mother. I give her free food, a bed, clean underpants. What does she expect? Look in the mirror, Taffy. For 14, you don't look so good. Never have I encountered such a morally bankrupt group of people. Can't hide them. If they're smart, they're queer. And if they're stupid, they're straight. Crime enhances one's beauty. The worse the crime gets, the more ravishing one becomes. I'm going to chop off your scrawny little paw. Watch as Divine performs the most perverse acts ever brought to the screen. I blew Richard Speck. And I'm so fucking beautiful I can't stand it myself. You'll follow Divine's life of sex and crime from its tawdry beginning to its very end. Share the tears and laughter with Divine, Edith Massey as Aunt Ida, and the Pink Flamingos Gang. A new high in low taste. John Waters' Female Trouble. She had a lot of problems. Coming soon from Saliva Films. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and of course, joining me, co-host, partner in crime and beauty, Mr. Mike White. Oddly enough, I also blew Richard Speck. Yeah, that makes sense. And joining us again, our good friend, Detroit area jam maven and film lover, Miss Juniper Moore. Hello. Hello, and thank you for having me back. 
This week, we're talking about Female Trouble, the 1974 film from the bard of Baltimore, Mr. John Waters. The film stars Divine as Dawn Davenport, a juvenile delinquent who runs in the fashion crowd who believes that crime increases your beauty. Following the birth of Dawn's daughter, Taffy, played by Mink Stoll, her crazy criminal ways continue to grow, thanks in part to the flashbulbs of the camera and mainlining liquid eyeliner. Of course, that just scratches the surface. So, Juniper, as our guest, we'll start with you. When did you first see Female Trouble, and what did you think? So, I was a painfully late start to Waters films, and I actually didn't get to Female Trouble until last night um, in preparation for talking to you guys this morning. Which, I, mean, I watched it three times um, without sleeping, so you two might be better off than I am. Um, which is probably for the best, I didn't get any crazy fever dreams. <laughs> um, it was disgusting in all the ways that I've heard John Waters is. And it lacked a lot of the humor that I was expecting, but I can see why people have really, really dug it. And as I delved further and further into it, I noticed that it had a lot of really fun satirical work to it, and a lot of special commentary that I really enjoyed. Very nice. What about you, Mr. Mike? Um, well, I thought on the um, Desperate Living episode that I was very fortunate to have seen quite a few John Waters films when I was going to school in, uh, up in Ann Arbor. And they did a, a two-night triple feature each night of his films. Female Trouble was not one of those. So I had to track that one down on my own a few years later. I think it was probably like 93 or so when I finally rented this one from Blockbuster. And I have to say, seeing this without an audience um, probably doesn't help. Uh, this one I was not necessarily that into. I can see it being this kind of quantum leap from Pink Flamingos as far as the the skill and everything, but I had kind of already gone past that and had seen what he had you know ended up doing when it came to like Serial Mom and Hairspray and all those kind of things. So seeing this one, I was just like, okay. And it it's such a, a straightforward narrative. Um, that I was just like, mm, oh, okay, you know, just not digging it as much as some of the other films that I had seen. I have to say, going back and watching it again recently, I liked it a lot more this time than I did back then. And I kind of like this whole, uh, especially the opening with the juvenile delinquent type thing um, and just telling the story of Dawn Davenport and how she kind of leads to her life of crime. So I, I enjoyed it more now in 2014 than I did in 93. As for me, I think I saw this. There was a um, bunch of re-releases originally on VHS and then into DVD, and I have the the DVD set of this. And must have been after after Pink Flamingos came out in the 25th anniversary edition. This was in the late 90s, and right around that time, it was like New Line put out like all this John early John Waters stuff. So they re-released Pink Flamingos and uh, Female Trouble, Desperate Living, uh, Polyester. So it was like all the early films except for one that I still haven't seen, uh, which is Mondo Trasho, and then um, Multiple Maniacs. Multiple Maniacs is still kind of I, I don't know why nobody is bothered to kind of give that a nice release. They haven't bothered with it. I think that it's probably too kind of scrappy and, you know, low rent. But I, I think it's interesting to see with Female Trouble sort of where it sits within, as you were talking about, Mike, um, sort of the whole sort of evolution of John Waters as a filmmaker and a storyteller and how the technique gets better as you go on. So this is definitely, if you watch enough of his films, you can say, okay, 
he continues to improve as you go forward. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Yes. <laughs> so the plot of the film, I think you kind of encapsulated it uh, quite a bit too. In the early go, it's uh, basically sort of this juvenile delinquent story, you know, sort of this rebel without a cause kind of idea. Dawn Davenport, she's in high school and she doesn't really get along with her teachers or classmates and her folks who uh, notoriously uh, better get her a certain item for Christmas, otherwise there's going to be trouble. What are they? Those are your new shoes, Dawn. Those aren't the right kind. I told you, shut down your black ones. Nice girls don't wear cha-cha heels. Give me those presents. I don't need to wear those ugly shoes. I told you the kind I wanted. You ruined my presents. <laughs> and then we get into her getting basically, I guess, knocked up on Christmas in the dump in a dual role. <laughs> Yeah, an exquisite, um, I don't know if you would call that a rape scene, because it does seem to be very consensual, uh, of Divine as Glenn, uh, picking up Divine as Divine, and taking her to the dump, and them going at it, running like pigs, pretty much in the slop. (laughs) I love Divine just yelling at him. Yeah, it was interesting. A lot of the feedback I've gotten on the film has characterized that as a rape scene, but going back and watching it, as much as it, her her moans of ecstasy sound very ingenuine, it appears consensual throughout the whole thing. So I was I'm surprised that it gets as much play as a rape scene. Yeah, I think it's just easier to call it that, and and of course that kind of fits in with the whole shocking thing that uh, Waters would play up. I'm sure he would easily call it a rape scene without a problem. <laughs> you know that that adds a little bit more uh, uh, dirt to it, as it were. But yeah, and then I love uh, I love Divine's line again as the, the male counterpart. Is Earl Peterson there? This is Dawn Davenport. Dawn Davenport. You made love to me Christmas morning. Well, I just wanted to tell you that I'm pregnant and I want money. You stole my wallet, you fat bitch. So what if I did? I want money. You'll never get any money from me, cow. Just because you got them big udders don't mean you're something special. <laughs> the, there's not a whole lot of love lost between those two, um, though they do seem to keep in contact after she's been knocked up and has taffy. And it's so good, that dual role. I mean, um, it's fun to watch uh, Divine play the, the male role because you really don't get that again with um, – with Divine as an actor until I think we talked about the Alan Rudolph film and then also uh, in Hairspray. Yeah, and in Hairspray, of course, we're like light years ahead and they can actually do the dual screen and have Divine acting right alongside Divine instead of using body doubles for the male and female parts. So really, I think at the core of the film is about peer pressure because it's not only about peer pressure in high school, but once... um, Dawn has the kid and then starts working in the hair salon and all of this and meets uh, David and Donna Dasher, who are played by David Lockery and Mary Vivian Pierce. It's very much about people sort of pushing Dawn, pushing Divine to do things because this would be cool and then we can take your photo and, of course, you're going to be more beautiful if you're uh, more criminally minded. Right, and the more scarred and... and grotesque to regular society you are the the better off you are in this kind of small circle of of very aberrant behavior people 
Yeah, I think that the peer pressure was definitely a really strong factor. Um, I might say that it's more of a desperation for fame and a social pressure. Um, and then these a couple people, the the owners of the beauty salon, um, the Dashers, was it? And then the Dashers kind of exploited that to their own gain as kind of a social pressure rather than peer pressure. But there's a lot of overlap between the two, certainly. And I think that that point that you make about the wanting of fame is is a great sort of satire throughout the film and kind of reminded me a little bit, Mike, um, and we'll be talking more about Belgian film coming up and probably one of the few Belgian films that I actually know is Man Bites Dog and sort of how in there that plays on the idea of criminality and fame and media and exposure. Yeah, exactly. This, I mean, we have to remember that this was made, what, early 70s, right? And um, we know that John Waters, big fan and probably I do mean fan at this point of Charles Manson and some of the serial killers that were really making headlines at the time. So kind of leading uh, Dawn Davenport from that early life of crime, as far as, you know, eating in class and smoking cigarettes and all that to being a, a, you know, a killer later on. And that kind of, um, almost backing into fame, you know, going at it the wrong way, becoming infamous rather than famous, but still at this point in history, famous all the same and having this kind of bully pulpit to speak out and to have the the cameras flashing at her and be in the limelight uh, kind of what she, maybe she wanted that all along, but just her road to it is definitely a little bit different than, um, the, the the more glamorous route to that. Maybe had she had some cha-cha heels, maybe things would have turned out differently for her. Yeah, I think um, Waters really tapped into something here with the rise of mass media that you've taken people that used to just get infamous, they used to just be posters on a wall somewhere of America's Most Wanted, and now they actually have this bully pulpit to talk about whatever they really want with, and Dawn is really exploiting that, and the Dashers are really exploiting her for that purpose. But it's kind of this shift from the infamy of or the celebrity of infamy to the celebrity of of more fame here. Yeah, she reminds me in this film, I mean, between Divine as Don Davenport and um, Edith Massey as Aunt Ida uh, and some of their more revealing outfits and just the way that their bodies are kind of emphasized in the film. It, it almost reminds me of like a um, Honey Boo Boo type of fame when it comes to this. <laughs> and how so? Well, just that whole idea of the more grotesque you are the more famous you become oh, okay so yeah you know, when i see divine shimming and shaking in outfits that are way too small for her it's like because she can be you know fairly attractive but there are times where it's just like wow that is not the right outfit for you honey <laughs> and especially that outfit that edith massey wears oh, yeah. i mean that oh. is just uh, amazing just so amazing <laughs> the black one or the white one the black okay. one <laughs> the lace-up black one, very revealing, and just emphasizing the curves that maybe shouldn't necessarily be emphasized. <laughs> you know, it, in a way, what this reminds me of, and, and I know, Mike, you've seen it because, uh, Jennifer, I don't think you've seen that many John Waters films, or this may have been the first one that you've seen, at least in this uh, early 70s ones, is that in a lot of ways – this movie reminds me of Multiple Maniacs in that there's this whole you know focus on the grotesque, 
sort of this circus kind of carnival-esque idea. Divine in multiple maniacs, much like this, kind of starts off kind of normal in a way. And it's like as it progresses, it just gets crazier. And by the end, is just completely out of it. Right. Yeah, as opposed to Pink Flamingos, where it kind of already starts in that off-kilter world. I mean, the whole idea of the contest to be the filthiest person in the world really fits in very well, and it doesn't feel like it's anywhere out of step with where we're at. But yeah, you don't have that progression necessarily that a Multiple Maniacs or this one has. But I, I almost like that we're, we start off normal-ish in those films and and dive into this um, fairly quickly. But um, I, I guess, you know, I like Pink Flamingos just as well, but I do like to see how Dawn's life of crime is kind of laid out. And the various characters, we were talking about Edith Massey as, as Aunt Ida. Um, this is the other aspect of the satire. And I think if this... I, I think this dialogue could be in a film today and it wouldn't be shocking, but the whole thing with Aunt Ida trying to convert her nephew to be gay is just hilarious. Aunt Ida, you know I dig women. Aunt, don't tell me that. Christ, let's not go through this again. All those beauticians and you don't have any boy dates? I don't want any boy dates. Oh, honey, I'd be so happy if you turned Nally. No way. I'm straight. I mean, I like a lot of queers, but I don't think they're equipment, you know? I like women. But you could change. Queers are just better. I'd be so proud if you was a fag and had a nice beautician boyfriend. I'd never have to worry. There ain't nothing to worry about. I worry that you work in an office. Have children. Celebrate wedding anniversaries. The world of heterosexual is a sick and boring life. If they're smart, they're gay. And if they're straight, they're stupid. <laughs> Wait till you meet my little gator. You two are going to fall right in love. My dear, I hope so. Are you sure he's gay? Well, I just use common sense. I mean, if they're smart, they're queer. And if they're stupid, they're straight. Right, Ernie? I mean, exactly. it's true, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Personally, my, some of my favorite dialogue is when, because we see Taffy, two different actresses play Taffy, and the first actress is actually like, what, 10 years old or whatever, and then we see Taffy four years later, and it's Mink Stoll playing her, and not looking at all like a 14-year-old, and and Gator, uh, Dawn's husband at this point, and, uh, and her are just making fun of Taffy like crazy, and I was just cracking up with that one. Oh, how can I call you my mother? I wish I'd been an orphan! You can tell she's retarded. Look at her face. She has the face of an old woman. Oh, it's true. Look in the mirror, Taffy. For 14, you don't look so good. It's because you've been such a brat all your life that now all that bratishness is showing in your face. The face of a retarded brat. Yes, sirree. That's a real-time warp of a face you got there. What do you know about anything? Some of the faces I've seen you with could stop a train. Give me ten dollars. Awfully demanding, aren't you? Give me ten dollars or I'm calling the police. It's as simple as that. And don't think I'd hesitate to put you two slobs behind bars for the rest of your lives. What would you do with ten dollars? Writing a book, hippie? Why don't you go listen to some folk music and give me a break? Yeah, it was really bizarre to see Mink Stoll as, I think she was 27 when she was doing this film, 
trying to play a 14-year-old. And they costumed well enough for a film with a $2 budget. But, um, but yeah, it was just that was one of the more unusual and amusing things to me. And I just love her constant kind of pout face. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, that lower lip just jutting out as far as it can go. She has one of the best lines of uh, of retort when it comes to that, you know, where they're going back and forth with um, with Gator and uh, Dawn. Hey, Taffy, baby, come suck your daddy's dick. Now, I wouldn't suck your lousy dick if I was suffocating and there was oxygen in your balls. <laughs> so good. I'm going to use that one in the future. So. <laughs> I can see how that would work well in certain circles. But the whole satire, though, of um, of like family life, right? So the whole <laughs> this this film is really sort of um, sort of a a satire also on like suburban families because okay, Dawn had this straight normal family, and then she gets married to Gator after she gets pregnant by herself, you know, Earl, I think it is, and um, tries to have this normal family. Right, but there's no way that that's going to work. And then all the dialogue with with Edith Massey's character, where she's basically deriding uh, heterosexuality, is it's it's just uh, it's quite a slam on on suburban normalcy. When I was watching it, I saw a lot of slams on like early fifties and early sixties teenage rebellion roles, where it's like, oh, let's go live in our suburban heteronormativity, and straight from the beginning with Don's weird, strange rebellions of eating meatball subs in the classroom. Um, I think it was kind of a play on that throughout, and then kind of the logical progression of, well, what happens when you have this really teenage rebellion character? What happens when you play that out into their adulthood? What sort of normalcy can they actually achieve? Yeah, and I love that the hair is such a symbol of that rebellion, too. The the bigger the hair the more of a of an outcast you are, or kind of it's a symbol of being cool, but yet it's also just such a mark that the teachers have. It's like, why is that hair so high? <laughs> yeah, and, and you see that played out throughout the film as her hair gets wilder and wilder, and it gets eventually she has a mohawk towards the end, and then in the final scene she's finally shaved completely, which for a heteronormative woman coming out of suburbia is a pretty atypical thing. I think the other thing, Mike, you were talking about how this one hasn't been uh, one of the favorites for you in the early John Waters films. And I think that part of the reason might be that while it's a comedy, it doesn't end um, where you expect, I guess, for the, um, the lead character. And what I mean by that is this is why I think it's much more like Multiple Maniacs in that the character that Divine plays in the end uh, doesn't really overcome her goal unless or, unless you want to see it as you know uh, spoiler spoiler even though it's in the trailer um, she gets electrocuted in the end so unless that was like the ultimate goal of this character um, it's not like the end of Pink Flamingos where they walk off down the street they're going to go to Boise and everyone you know it's like we won you know there's this sense of the freaks won and with this film it's almost like a sense that the freak lost in a way. I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah, I see that. I mean, it's almost like that, you know, I was expecting at points that the giant crab from the, the earlier film would kind of show up and, and eat her, you know, just kind of in the movie this way. But I, um, was it a crab or was it a lobster? A giant lobster. 
lobster, that's right. Even though Baltimore is famous for their crabs, we had that giant lobster in there. Um, and I do mean that in every way, that they're famous for their crabs. Actually, they're more famous for their, I think it's for their syphilis right now. But anyway, um, they, I, I was expecting that. And then, yeah, you're right, because that one ends very abruptly. And then this one with the the electric chair, I kept thinking, okay, well, uh, you know, the she lost. She was our hero, you know. <laughs> so I can see Waters turned the, the tables on us, and that's that's absolutely fine. That's his right. But I did kind of want to see Dawn succeed because I was rooting for her, even though she was so twisted throughout the film. Well, note to self: don't go to go to Baltimore anytime soon. <laughs> um, it's surprising to hear you both coming from that angle of. Dawn losing in the end because as I'm watching I'm watching her character progress and like looking for this infamy that can only be immortalized in death and I hear her kind of echo that sentiment as she's in prison that finally she's going to get her time in the spotlight and so I thought that the electrocution and that being the final note of her life was really perfectly appropriate for her character. I guess I wanted her to have more than her 15 minutes of fame you know wanted her to have that that fame for to be on that spotlight a little bit longer, but I can understand that she did kind of succeed with her goal. I think that I part of the reason why maybe we feel that way is that when you look at other films that John Waters did, like in this era, like Pink Flamingos, and I think maybe Desperate Living as well, there's this attitude that in the end, these monsters still sort of roam the countryside and they could come back. And they've been sort of set free in a way, you know, sort of like almost like uh, I know that John Waters had compared Divine at some point to like, you know, Kaiju Monster, you know, sort of like (laughs) unleashing Godzilla. And it's almost like, yes, okay, um, you know, she'll be back. You know, it's like this isn't the end. And I I think that the ending at times, while I agree with you, is is satisfying in one way of the plot and the story. In another way, it's sort of like. Yeah, okay, I guess that's the end of that. (laughs) In the vein of this character being able to come back, don't you think that kind of fits in with the whole rise to infamy and the pressures of social fame and that any person can be turned by that beauty school into, or the beauty salon into this monster? They created Dawn out of almost nothing. They just took someone off the street and created this creature that is now roaming the countryside and whose life has ended, and they can do it again. Yeah, I, I definitely see your point. I, 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 I'm not going to say that that is like the end all be all of the message, but I, I think that that is definitely one way one way it can be reached. I, I think sort of a um, a next evolution of this story is 20 years later, and you had brought up Serial Mom, Mike, and I think in a lot of ways this is almost like maybe a, uh, a lower version, uh, an early test run for what Serial Mom is. And to spoil that one, at the end of Serial Mom, she gets away with it. So <laughs> there's you know there's this uh, attitude within Waters Films from time to time of of letting you know, the horrible people go because they're just too much fun, I guess. Well, yeah, and I see that that's kind of not only the evolution of the films, but also the evolution of, you know, what media has become and all this. It's it's funny that in Serial Mom, you know, one of the uh, actors in that is uh, Patricia Hearst, you know, it, who is famous for being infamous. You know, her whole thing with the Symbionese Liberation Army, uh, Symbionese, whatever, and just, you know, that she had that time in the spotlight and she got away with it. You know, it was her whole like, Oh, they forced me to do this thing. And yet she still, she, she 
managed to keep her fame while doing the crime. And I think that that's kind of what people really are hoping to do, um, you know, when it comes to this. I mean, Octomom is still around, you know, just like the people that you don't want to associate with, but they managed to get their time in the spotlight and they still pop up every now and then. <laughs> Some of the other uh, characters in the film that I really like and or things that I find funny is uh, the whole thing about Gator leaving. You'll be all right, Ann Ida. I'm just sick of everything here. I'm going to Detroit and find happiness within the auto industry. Which I guess in 1973-74, you could find that within the auto industry. Maybe not so much anymore. One of the things I found really interesting was how just how the film aged, and that was one of the more notable aspects of it, beyond you know how all the, the gross-out humor and things aged. Um and gay culture age, but the Detroit as a symbol of progress and prosperity, which at this point, I know like two people that have moved to Detroit for work, but out of, you know, hundreds of people that want to leave. Talking about the, uh, the aging of the film in some way, it's interesting. If you watch the other films in this period that John Waters did, basically the early features such as multiple maniacs and pink flamingos, deals a lot in long takes and zoom ins and this one he actually has gotten to a point where um he's starting to be able to understand um that you can do a lot of intercutting so editing gets better yeah just like the the scene with uh taffy when she confronts earl i i noticed just all those cutaways that like what boar's head or whatever it was on the the wall it was a little rough as far as like, okay, we're not going to cut from the single to the single, um, you know, because it would be more of a jump cut and we need something in there. But it was like, okay, every few seconds they just kind of cut to the boards <laughs> so they can go back. But yeah, there's actually a lot of cutting compared to his uh, his other stuff, though he still doesn't necessarily have the whole 180 degree rule down. There are a couple times where he just kind of jumps right over it and it's like a little shocking as far as that goes. But he even talks on the um, audio commentary that he was still learning this stuff. So, you know, I cut him some slack. As for references to other films, I think that that line that Edith has when she's in the cage, she's being held by Dawn and she's cut off her hand and Taffy's like, you know, I get you something to eat. There's no food here. Mother doesn't buy food for me. You want an egg? There might be a couple old eggs in the kitchen. Uh, John Waters talks about in the commentary that it was kind of a cheap throwaway that he put in there and he shouldn't have done that. But I, I think it's kind of funny to reference back to the earlier work. Yeah, it definitely works for me. Anytime you have Edith Massey in a cage, there needs to be some sort of reference to eggs. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Taffy Davenport herself, Ms. Mink Stoll. They're 12 miles of bad road. And now they have a microphone and their own show. It's the Daily Grindhouse Podcast, the official podcast of dailygrindhouse.com. Starring G. You tell that bitch who sent you here. How sorry I am, I can no longer be her friend. And the man called Perry. I'm the one that killed Monday, whooped Tuesday, put Wins in the hospital. All the birds did a tell five did not the birds fair Jones son. Reviewing the hits and the hidden from the world of exploitation, cinema, and beyond. Featuring exclusive cast and crew interviews. Past guests include John Carpenter, Robert Forster, Brian Trenchard-Smith, but still no Steve Gutenberg. 
We'll get them someday. We promise. I mean, we promise. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast, available on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, Podomatic, and of course at dailygrindhouse.com slash podcasts. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast, tough films for the rough crowd. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. If you listen to Proudly Resents, the cult movie podcast, you would know how to properly crush a head. Well, let's say you want to crush a head like Toxic Avenger or the yeah. famous full head crushing scene. You take a cantaloupe, carve out the inside, then you load what we call loading the cantaloupe. We used to put in hamburger mixed with cranberry sauce, but now because I'm a vegetarian, it's only cranberry and spaghetti and things that are not animal. Then you put a wig on the cantaloupe and paint a little happy face. Bingo. That was Lloyd Kaufman from Troma Films. To hear more interviews and reviews, go to ProudlyResents.com or find Proudly Resents on iTunes and Stitcher. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh-huh. us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that fucking burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one That is one star too many. <laughs> Let me tell you. The worst fucking piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ah. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. You know, I was looking for a little excitement, but I was worried about privacy. And then I found out about Vibrators.com. Vibrators.com has the perfect products for women and men and couples. They have helpful suggestions and information on how to make sure you get something just right for you. Plus, for over a decade, Vibrators.com has never played around with your privacy. While other .coms make their money by selling your information, Vibrators.com never has and never will. And when you use the special code BOOTH, that's B-O-O-T-H, at checkout, you'll receive free priority shipping on any order that's vibrators.com get a little excitement in your life Lots of problems 
So your arrivals with Divine in Pink Flamingos, and then your mother and daughter in We're Female mother, Trouble? mother, father, and daughter. Mother, father, and daughter. <laughs> so what did family. you think? <laughs> what did you think when uh, John came to you with this idea? Oh, I was thrilled. I was thrilled. As a matter of fact, I was in a better mood making Female Trouble than possibly in any of the other film, other movies. I loved being a brat. I just loved it because, first of all, I didn't think she was a brat. I thought, I mean, I just thought she was, I, I was very, very, I was very fond of the character of Taffy. I identified very strongly with Taffy because although my circumstances are different, I'm one of 10 kids, not an only child, and I was never beaten with a car antenna. But, you know, I, I had that same sense of isolation and, and being misunderstood. Taffy was not bad. Taffy was misunderstood, looking for attention, trying to get love just the way everybody does. And, you know, rebelling against the, this indifferent parent. So, um, you know, I mean, it, it was, and I, I mean, I didn't have a, and I had a similar, very different, but similar in tone, similar in mood, prickly relationship with my own mother. You know, so I related to Taffy, and I didn't think, and I, Taffy wasn't retarded. Taffy was just, you know, she was badly treated and very misunderstood. And you can tell, I mean, it's just the idea that she would join a cult, you know, is indicative of how much she was looking for family, you know, looking for connection. And she was kind. You know, she was kind to Edith when Edith was in the birdcage. Now, isn't that a sentence? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, just, sometimes I just, you know, I just think about these things and I think, well, you know, Edith was in the birdcage and her hand had been cut off and she was wearing a hook and I tried to make her some food. And, you know, these are just ludicrous things to say. <laughs> so how did you get into this bratty role? Did you just kind of turn it on? Just turned or? it on. Oh, nice. Yeah. It, it didn't take a lot of prep. I, I don't, I'm not sitting in the sidelines with my head and my hands brooding over my character, usually. You know, I mean, the, the character that I'm playing in this Tennessee Williams play, I, I actually do have to work on because it goes into some pretty dark places. But, uh, but it's also funny, so I don't have to, you know, I don't, I don't have to. It, I'm not tortured. I'm not a tortured actor. <laughs> <laughs> You're not uh, there with the method and no, all that. No, right? I'm really not. <laughs> and whether whether or not it, it it I don't know whether what it does you know for or or not for my performances. But I have learned over the years that audiences really don't give a shit how you how you get to where you go on the stage. They don't want to know what your process is. They don't want to know anything about it. They just want to believe the character you're giving them. And if you can, if you can do that, you know, if it takes some sort of self-torture to get there, okay. But the audience doesn't need to know it, you know. And I, I get so tired of actors that go, well, my character wouldn't do that. Well, maybe not. But if, you could, if, you, if your character does it on the stage, you know, if you do it, then your character does do it. You know, I don't know my character, and that you know all this backstory. It's just like oh, it gets it gets actors can be very tedious humans. <laughs> I don't have a lot of actor friends. 
I love the whole thing of playing car accident. That was fun, wasn't it? Well, that was John. I mean, Taffy was based on uh, me, John, and Pat Moran. And John used to get his parents to buy him toy cars, and he would take them out in the backyard and wreck them on purpose. He, his parents would take him to junkyards. There was a scene that got cut out. I don't think it's in the movie anyway. I think it got cut out of Taffy going to a junkyard. I, I think that was actually cut out of the film. But uh, John's parents would take him to car junkyards. You know, I mean, he, <laughs> he, he's a hard person to say no to. And I think he started, you know, he started getting his way when he was at a very early age. And I'm happy about that because... You know, had he not been able to, had he not had the confidence to uh, assume people would say yes to him, he might not have asked people to do the stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of Dreamlanders in the film, but there are, you had some outsiders in this one. Um, like, uh, I'm trying to remember if you guys worked with Michael Potter before. No, we had not worked with Michael Potter before or since, and I don't think anybody even knows where he is today. What was it like working with him? He was fine. You know, I mean, he he was not he was not family. Uh, in Pink Flamingos, everybody was family. My, Michael Potter wasn't. I mean, some people worked with us once and then became family. Other people worked with us and didn't. You know, and Michael just didn't. He didn't become family. Just didn't have the chemistry. Uh, who or? knows? I, it was probably. I have no idea. I didn't work with him enough to really get to know him. You know, I had one scene with him. And then, and that was, you know, the, the I wouldn't suck your lousy dick scene. So, but, I, you know, but that's the only scene I ever had with him because he was gone. You know, he'd been, he, he, there was a divorce. And we filmed the movie in not complete, I mean, I don't remember filming in complete chronological order, but the, a semblance of it. So, you know, by the time I was on the scene, he was gone. So speaking of family, sadly, this was uh, David Lackerley's last film. Yes. What was it like working with him on this one? I adored David. I absolutely loved David. He was my very one of my very first grown-up really good friends. And he was... David could be difficult to work with. On this particular movie, David could be quarrelsome. Um, and on this particular movie, there were there was one scene... Where I, we were rehearsing the dinner party scene, and in the, you know, in that scene, I throw a bowl of spaghetti at the wall. Well, I'm holding air. You know, we're rehearsing it. I'm pantomiming. I am miming throwing spaghetti against the wall, miming it. You know, nothing in my hands, and you know, so I throw, I, I mime throwing it at the wall, and he starts bitching that I was aiming at him. And I was like, David, I don't have anything in my hands. You know, if if I if when the time comes and there's you know when there's really something in my hands, get out of the damn way. <laughs> you know, it's like I won't deliberately aim a bowl of spaghetti that could actually hurt you, or worse, mess up your costume that might not be cleanable. You know, heaven forbid. You know, we had to be careful about stuff like that. You know, because if you had another scene in that costume and the costume was ruined, ugh, you know, what are you going to do about that? You know, I mean, we there were all all sorts of little things that you have to keep in mind. But it was just like, you know, it was it was just silly of him to be worried about something like that. Or he'd say things like, when we were rehearsing, you had your head on this side, and then when the camera was running, you put your head on the other side. 
Oh, that's and maybe what I a did. rehearsal's for. Yeah. You know, maybe I did. I don't know. I, it, it, it wasn't conscious, but it, I mean, but I might have done it. You know, so I don't know. But I mean, those were the, he would quarrel about things like that. But I love David and I miss him still. It was interesting to see him in, in the I Am Divine film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of those early um, images of him and stuff I had never seen. That was really nice to, to, to see those. And I had not known about his relationship. I mean, I didn't realize that he had sort of been Divine's drag sponsor. I hadn't known that. You know, I learned things in that movie that I didn't know about Divine. Yeah, Jeff did a, just a remarkable Amazing job. Amazing job. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much affection and so much so much respect and affection, but not a whitewash. You know, I mean, I I thought it was it was really 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 well done. I want to see his other movies. I haven't seen them. I imagine it had to be a little difficult to follow up uh, Pink Flamingos with pretty much anything. What was it like when uh, Female Trouble premiered? What was the reaction like? Well. Um, it, I think it did well. I can't really remember. Um, I don't think anything ever had the impact on the public that Pink Flamingos did. Until Hairspray, which had a completely different, you know, which got a completely different response. But, you know, a huge response. I mean, Pink Flamingos just had really caught the imagination of so many people. I missed out on all of the Pink Flamingo excitement. Pink Flamingo's excitement, yeah. I was in San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco for a while after the movie was finished, so I was not on the East Coast for all of this, you know, when it opened here and when the, uh, you know, went to the theater in New York and started all this midnight stuff. I wasn't around for any of that. And when it actually opened in San Francisco, I went to the first night that it played. It was, We didn't have a big opening. It, it, it played at a movie theater. I went, and... When it was over, I was in the lobby, and people came and people came out, and, and they were saying, "Oh, it was good." <laughs> you know, I was getting all this very polite response. So it was not a hit when it first opened in San Francisco. It, it later caught on, but you know, I missed out on all of that big whoopty over Pink Flamingos. And Female Trouble, we had a big New York opening, and it was exciting, and it was a lot of fun, And except it was snowing, and people had to wait in line, and, and uh, you know, a lot, a lot of the people who had worked on the film came up from Baltimore, and it was just, you know, and, and the only people that were getting any attention were Divine, Edith, and John. So there was a little bit of a, you know, people, some people's noses got a little out of joint, but... You know, that's the way of the world. And we had, you know, that's when you leave your home and you go out in the world, that's kind of the thing that happens. And it was a, it was a bit of a shock for all of us because we had all sort of shared in the glow, you know, when things opened in Baltimore. And it was just a little bit of, a, of an eye-opener. It was fine. You know, I mean, it was just what, what it, it was what it was. But um, it was, I, I, I don't know. I, I can't really gauge I, I honestly don't remember. I was just amazed at the amount of growth in filmmaking and prowess between the two films. Yeah. You know? Well, I think of the two. Well, I think that Female Trouble is John's. Um, I forget what's the word. Uh, masterpiece. I think it's his, especially it's his early masterpiece because 
the story is cohesive, the acting is consistent. I, I mean, I'm a particularly love even you know the stuff after I'm after I'm dead. All the pri- the trial scenes and the prison scenes, they're moving and effective. I mean, you know those those scenes, you know, with with Divine's friends saying goodbye in the prison, are really tear-inducing. You know, there's a there's a real there's a much more cohesive and well to- well told story in female trouble than there is in Pink Flamingos. And it's less wordy. You know, every word means something. So I think it was a, a huge jump in, in craftsmanship. I think we were still shooting master shots, though. You know, we hadn't started cutaways yet. Yeah, you told me last time we talked that each film seemed to be like this huge progression, you know, between like silent Well, yeah, we started out silent 8 millimeter. Right. And then went from silent eight millimeter to silent sixteen millimeter black and white to to then sixteen millimeter black and white talk you know with sound, then sixteen millimeter color with sound, you know, and then that was and pink flamingos was that, and then I think it was polyester female trouble. I mean, desperate living I think was still sixteen millimeter, but polyester was thirty five. So uh, yeah, they I mean it's like a you know encapsulated cinema history. Right. Yeah, it was like Female Trouble was still kind of that like biograph era before D.W. Griffith had done like editing and the cutaways and right. all that stuff. Like, <laughs> but, but the craftsmanship, I think the cinematography is better. I the, the story is better, and the acting is cons- is consistently better throughout. I mean, you know, the the um, the the secondary characters are all really well done. Yeah, I think it just holds up so well. And the wardrobes were amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, they oh, yeah. should have gotten an Academy Award for that. Sometimes I wish I had a gun So you and I could be alone You'd be my hostage for the day And you'd do just what I say I'd aim it at your arms And make you wrap them round I'd aim it at your lips And make you say you love me I'd aim it at your eyes Give a look of love And we'd be happy, baby Sometimes I wish I had a gun Thanks to Mink Stoll for coming on the show. You can hear more from her on the I Am Divine and Desperate Living episodes. We're back and we're talking about female trouble. Now, speaking of desperate living, female trouble is towards, uh, I guess, maybe the middle of John Waters' early films. If you consider that Desperate Living was the last one he did on 16, and then right after that was Polyester, which was 35, and he actually had, you know, a professional crew, and it looks a lot nicer. So, uh, where does sort of female trouble sort of stack up for you if you've seen other of his films? How does it play against his other films and ideas? Now, Juniper, how many of these early ones have you seen? Zero. Zero. This was, this was my first Waters film. I was actually supposed to see a friend last night and have a Waters marathon all night. But um, that didn't happen, so I only saw the one. Now, have you seen his later stuff, like Serial Mom or Pecker or any of those? No, Serial Mom was actually um, one of my friend's... Uh, my ex's favorite film of all time. Um, 
or my favorite, her favorite film of John Waters, I should say. And so that was one that I was saving to watch with her, but we didn't get quite get around to it, unfortunately. For me, I have to say that I, I think, for, well, obviously, since we covered Desperate Living before, that one really is very close to my heart. Um, it, which is weird to say because it's one of the few John Waters films without Divine from the early days, and I'm not kind of dissing on Divine. Obviously, I love her a lot, but there's just something about Ming Stoll's, um just her manic behavior and just being completely melodramatic. Um, I think that that one and polyester really kind of play uh, for me as the best ones uh, of his earlier years, even though I think polyester really is kind of that breaking point where he goes into, you know, full fledged filmmaker mode. I love pink flamingos and that's probably the one that I've seen the most as far as his early films go. Whenever there's a screening of that, I'll definitely go to see it. And then I have to say, I haven't really, I think I saw Mondo Trasho once and multiple maniacs once. And then obviously this one female trouble, I'd only seen the one time before as well. Yeah. I'm pretty forgiving of the early stuff because I know it's rough and I've always appreciated, um, like indie film and being someone who made low budget movies. I was like, yeah, you know, I, I kind of understand where you're starting from, but the great thing for me has been to watch, as you were saying, sort of this evolution where you go from something like multiple maniacs and pink flamingos and and move through to, you know, by the time he gets to polyester, he's got the technique down, he knows what he's doing. And then things kind of, kind of roll forward from there, which is nice. And then, you know, some of the, the more current stuff, I would say over the last 15 years or so have been kind of hit or miss. You know, um, oh, I would say big misses. <laughs> but I, but the one thing that I feel about Waters in totality is that even if there are some, you know, he's swinging at things and he's not quite hitting it, it's still more interesting and fun for me to watch than it is to watch other people doing similar things. Yeah, when it comes to his later work, I mean, I said polyester for me is kind of that spot where he really comes into his own as far as you know full filmmaking technique and everything and unfortunately he only really made a few films after that and there were were long gaps in between them you know like polyester was 81 and hairspray was until 88 but polyester hairspray crybaby serial mom really good string of films right there but then pecker I wasn't really thrilled about Cecil be demented. I actually really hate that film and a dirty shame I thought was an utter disappointment. And I do mean utter like Selma Blair's breath. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. Um, it's really interesting um, or a pleasure to hear you two both say that, that it, it gets better. Um, and it's always something that I would assume got better, but watching female trouble, I could see a lot of those very, very rough hewn edges and, it really made me excited to get into his late 80s and early 90s work. Yeah, not a lot of people realize that whole It Gets Better campaign that they do uh, is actually about the John Waters films. <laughs> nice. I'm, I'm glad to know that. <laughs> <laughs> but Female Trouble for me has always been one of those films that I enjoy because I like his 70s films. I, I like Multiple Maniacs. I've probably seen it three or four times. Pink Flamingos I saw in the re-release in the theater, which was hilarious because I remember going to see it in 97 because it was 25th anniversary. It was released at, and they showed it in the Detroit area and I took a friend of mine to go see it and he was like, oh yeah, I like Hairspray. 
like, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, I know where this story's going. <laughs> we saw, we heard the interview. Um, he had done an interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air for the re-release of Pink Flamingos, and so we're like, yeah, great, you know, and we'll go see it. And I had never seen it because either it had been long since out of print on VHS, or just I couldn't get a copy of it somehow or whatever, and. I remember that on the poster for the 25th anniversary, it says, make sure to stick around. There's like an extra 20 minutes of deleted scenes. It was almost like, in a way, um, what they put out on the DVD, and I think the VHS, too, was what they showed at the theater, where you had the whole film. I think it may have even opened with the trailer or it ended with the trailer or something, because it had the, the, the John Waters... Um, French inhale, go ahead and smoke in the theater, PSA, which I absolutely love. Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you that smoke anyway, it gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. It opened with that and then it went into the film. And then as soon as the film ends... It's him behind his desk in his house going, we found these extra scenes and, you know, and sort of does this 20 minutes of sort of reminiscing about the film, which is kind of cool. Well, as soon as the infamous scene, and I'm not going to ruin it for you because, you know, if you know Pink Flamingos, you know what it is. Um, my friend just shot up out of the chair and ran out. He <laughs> could take it. And um, he waited out in the lobby while I sat there for another 30 minutes and just was reveling with John and all these deleted scenes and various other stuff that, that he pulled out. And, and Pink Flamingos has always been, even though it is rough and it's got certain elements to it, it's always been one that I can put in and just laugh. It's it always is funny to me for some reason, and it's really demented. Uh, Desperate Living, I love Desperate Living, like you were saying, because of Mink. I mean, Mink is just incredible. And then pairing her against Gene Hill, like Gene Hill has some of the greatest lines in anything that John Waters ever wrote <laughs> in that thing. And having um, Edith Massey as sort of this crazed dictator of this town of rejects is just hilarious. So all that early stuff up to polyester i i just enjoy i just sort of revel in it and um i i sort of see his career sort of like in two parts in a way there's the early films and then there's polyester forward well it is sad that he hasn't been able to get another film going since dirty shame and there's been several movies that have been discussed one called fruitcake um that he wrote and he can't get the money for so when he doesn't we can't make movies he writes or he does the tour. He does these comedy tours. I saw him on the Christmas tour. I think it was like a year, year and a half ago. And that those are always fun. And he has a book coming out, I think, this summer about his hitchhiking. Do you remember the stories of his hitchhiking recently? Yes. So that should be pretty good because I remember there was a, a story that popped up somewhere online of some band or somebody picked up this hitchhiker and it just happened to be John Waters out in the middle of like Ohio or something. So his, his books are good too. Like if you've never, if, if you enjoy his films and you haven't had a chance to read like, like shock value or um, what's the other one? 
that he did that was a series of essays. Uh, Role Models is good, where he talks about various, you know, famous and not so famous people who have had an effect on him. And um, I can't remember the, the, the book of essays that he did. What was it? I'm not sure. It was from the mid 80s. Anyway, that one's pretty good, too. So it's, um, I, I always liked him not only as someone who's a director who, who makes you know, films that I enjoy, but also as someone who's a personality and kind of in a way doing this, I don't want to call it stand up because it's not really comedy in that way. It's more just like, you know, spoken word, telling stories kind of thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm somewhat ambivalent about waters these days. I mean, he's been in, I don't know, 146 documentaries, uh, just always shows up whenever there's a documentary. I mean, we, we talked recently about the Joe Sarno documentary. He showed up in that. It's like between him, the, um, the, uh, Quentin Tarantino and one of the guys from, and not the meat puppets, uh, from the circle jerks, like those three guys just kind of own documentaries. Whenever there's a documentary, you're going to see one of those guys. Well, whenever it's about sort of underground culture or specifically like sex exploitation or B movies, it just seems that they've got to pull up John Waters. And I think the reason like you were saying about that is because, he, and I think it was in Shock Value, talks about Faster Pussycat. So it's like, oh, if it wasn't for John Waters, then nobody would today would know about Russ Meyer. I don't believe that's true, but anyway. Yeah, and well, the thing, too, is that he gives great interview. He is very entertaining as a speaker. You talked about his, his tour and everything. He does an amazing job when it comes to that. And uh, for a few years, uh, I was going down to the Maryland Film Festival, and every Saturday night down there, he picks the movie, like the 8 o'clock movie, and it's usually something very unusual, something that you're not going to have seen or if you have, you're going to want to see it again. So he is definitely helping, you know, bring some of the fringe forward. And I have to say, his discussions before and afterwards are always great, and it is a real pleasure to hear him talk and to hear him give information about these films. So he is very learned when it comes to this stuff. It's just every once in a while I, I want to be like, you know, can you take a break from the documentaries and actually go make a film? But I know that that's not as easy as we would like to say. But I would love to see, you know, of, of all the people in the world who could get a Kickstarter funded, I would think John Waters could get a Kickstarter funded. Oh, yeah, easily, easily. Especially if, you know, um, Spike Lee can and, you know, that guy from Scrubs or whatever. Yeah, Zach Galifianakis or whoever. <laughs> <laughs> I know that that's not the right name, so don't write in. Don't tell me that I was wrong. But yes, if Veronica Mars can make a movie off of Kickstarter, then I would think John Waters could. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Maybe he's kind of getting to an age where he just doesn't want to do that anymore. Because I mean, that's true. Making a movie. You know, the production of a film is a major pain in the ass. I mean, it just, there's so many working parts. You got 16, 18, 20 hour days. You know, guy's in his 60s now, and he's probably like, you know what? Forget it. Like, I, I could just write, <laughs> you know, and go do this tour. Right. And then you have a holes like me that are just like, hey, a dirty shame sucks. So. <laughs> See, I didn't hate it as much as you do. There's there's elements of it that I really like. I actually like Cecil B. Demented. I, I saw Cecil B. Demented in the theater and enjoyed it. But the one thing that I realized with that film is that if it was made a year later, it never would have got made. Like if he would have tried to get that thing funded after September 11th, it never would have happened. I thought Cecil B. Demented had some interesting ideas. I like the whole idea of like the film 
uh, club kind of stuff where you get your favorite filmmaker tattooed on your arm and all that. And I enjoyed some of that, but it didn't seem, uh, again, to go far enough. It seemed a, a little tame for a John Waters film, and I would have liked it to have gone much farther than it was. I don't know if it was the presence of, you know, at the time, A-list actors. Uh, personally, I usually blame Stephen Dorff for anything that goes wrong in the world, but um, I, I'm not sure what it was, but it just didn't seem to have the the vigor that it should have. I could see that. I mean, to me, it it was almost a throwback to something like female trouble it was a throwback to multiple maniacs this idea of like a group of freaks out doing stuff on the fringes and i agree with you that at times it didn't go as far and i think that that has to do with like you were saying i mean when you put melanie griffith in your film there's probably certain things that melanie griffith will not want to do or be around so but it does have some great stuff i love his satire of um Hollywood sort of parachuting into cities that they normally don't make films and doing a uh, sequel to Forrest Gump, which I absolutely fucking hate Forrest Gump. And that whole thing is hilarious. Yeah. There are some good pointed barbs in there. I just, it, it felt like maybe it could have used a little bit more polishing before it went in front of the camera. So female trouble, um, you're talking about the hairstyles in here, Juniper. And specifically, I think we get towards the end with the whole trampoline thing. I'm like, Mohawks? I'm like, that was like 73, 74 they made this. This is kind of punk before punk in a way. Yeah, I was um, I was watching through the film and I saw that come up and I'm like, when was this made? When was this made? Because clearly it was ahead of its time in that regard. Maybe not so much the makeup department, but definitely the hairstyles. I was really kind of reminded of the girl with the dragon tattoo while I was watching this, especially the courtroom scenes when she comes out and her hair's all up and everything. And it's just like, you know, thinking of, uh, um, Oh God, I can't remember the, the uh, thinking of Numi Rapace coming out and, and being all punked out and everything. But yeah, again, like 20, 30 years earlier, it was just like, this is pretty cool. Almost 40 years earlier, 40 years earlier. <laughs> yes. The, um, the other aspect of this, and I was going to ask sort of your take on it as well, is I, I think you talked a bit about sort of the um, heteronormative stuff, but what do you think about the the stuff that Waters puts in here related to the whole dialogue with Aunt Ida and the gay stuff? I mean, do you think he's having fun with it? Do you think he's actually making solid points? I don't know that various solid points can be made about straight people are dumb and gay people are smart, um, but I think Waters is probably coming from a place that of where a lot of people that were interacting with him were probably pretty uneducated of, and, and that leads to a lot of like, Jesus fuck straight people just get it through your heads. Like I like to fuck dudes in the ass, big deal. Um, and that can get tiring after a while, like educating people. And in that sense, when you're kind of living your life in kind of this, in, in a non-normative way, the people that share your non-normativity seem a lot more educated and enlightened than other people oftentimes. So in, the, in in that sense, I think that yeah, I, I think maybe he was making a point. Was it fair? I I don't know that I would say that. He always talks about how um, he's not necessarily the best sort of poster child for for gay people because he's like you know the best thing about being gay when he was growing up. He used to say was the fact that you didn't have to join the service or get married. So he's like, why would anyone want to do either of those? So. <laughs> I 
I can't think of a single reason anyone would anyone would want to do either of those. Um, no, I, should Waters be the poster child for gay people? No, I, I, I don't think that. Um, I don't think there should be a poster child, right? And especially someone who's doing such fringe um, film, especially this earlier stuff. Um, that's not necessarily the image you want to represent you to a group of people that are already afraid of you. Um, in a general sense, you know, let, like let's drive this image home uh, and just make people more concerned that we're sexually deviant and that we're into incest and child assault. And that's not the image you want to drive home. So in the sense of being a poster child, no, I don't think that that would have been an appropriate thing. And I'm glad he uh, kind of went out of his way to say that. Yeah, I love that he is all about pushing buttons, and he doesn't care whose buttons he's pushing. You know, if if there ever is a time when uh, you know uh, LGBT, what what what's the full acronym? Uh, LGBTIA something or other. <laughs> um, it changes every week. Um, okay. And since right. pretty much everything after LGB is pretty well ignored, I just use LGB etc. Okay, <laughs> so if there's ever a time where LGB, etc., is fully embraced by quote-unquote mainstream culture, I'm sure that Waters is just going to find something else to you know to to push people's buttons on. So I like that he is always pushing against whatever, um, wherever and whatever it is. He's all about the fringes, and that's what I really kind of appreciate about him. Yeah, he's absolutely trying to make people uncomfortable from. Oh yeah. There's nothing in this film that isn't trying to achieve that goal, and at the time, that was a lot of gay culture. I wouldn't say that there was... I don't think there were any lesbians or trans people in the film. I think there were real-life trans people. The I want to say from the um, audio commentary that it's the person that David Lockerley flashes uh, in Pink Flamingos has... Um, had their transitional surgery at that point. So, um, but yeah, as far as lesbians, I can't think of any sort of like lesbianism in the film, at least other than maybe, um, Ernestine and, and Dawn, um, in jail. But I don't know how pure that relationship is. That's more in desperate living where the lesbians kind of really come out in desperate living. Oh yeah. And again, that whole community of, you know, taking what, "Quote unquote," normal people would think is 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 deviant, and just having that whole group and having that whole city and kingdom that's led by Edith Massey. You know, that's one of the things that I absolutely love. The other thing that's great about Female Trouble is I think this is the first time that he didn't use needle drops all the way through the film. With Pink Flamingos and um, in the earlier films, it was all about, oh, this is a great track from you know the B-side of this obscure R&B record or whatever. We'll throw that in. And in this, he actually had written lyrics to a theme song that Divine sings. And then talking to Mink, actually, if you go listen to the I Am Divine episode uh, that we did, that was at the time when she was doing the Kickstarter, finishing off the Kickstarter for her uh, record where she did a cover version of Female Trouble as well. Yeah, which is a great cover. I mean, the whole album is pretty amazing and something that you don't expect from Ming Stoll. I mean, having seen her in these movies all these years, I didn't expect her to have the pipes that she has, and she does a great job with that. Okay, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. I've been accused of being a misogynist. Only by women, of course. I'm sure you realize that display models can't be sold. Order of the Board of Health. 
Every time I think I can get someone to trust with a little responsibility, it's never true. Every time I think I can count on someone, I get hurt. I care about power. I can't waste time beating around the bush. Position six. Hey, baby. Oh, you look awfully nice. Power! What on earth going on? Out of everything out of this box, you had to sell my bar. You asshole. You don't. You impotent jerk. You fool. You unmitigated clown. You know, not every girl gets a chance to fuck me. Will you shut up and get on with it? I'm from the Bureau of Internal Affairs. Is this your wife? Yes. I, uh, hope you won't be insulted by anything I say or do. It's because of this odor that I have. Smell it. I told you, it should have been in my underwear drawer. I don't know what could have happened to it. Honest. I want you to understand right now that I'm not a revolutionary out of any sense of altruism or love of humanity. I don't care about anybody but myself. I can see that it was all because of that vicious suck. She calls herself Madame. That's right, we are back next week and heading into the world of adult cinema again. We'll be talking about the 1983 film Smoker with our good friend Heather Drain. Joining us on the show will be the star of Smoker, the legendary Sharon Mitchell. And we'll also be hearing from the other star of the film, David Christopher, who's got a whole lot to say about being in the film and the world of adult film. We want to thank this week's special guest, Mink Stoll, for coming on and talking to us. Of course, we'll have links over to her website from our website, which is projection-booth.com, where you can learn more about what she's up to and female trouble. And, of course, we want to thank our special guest co-host, Juniper Moore, for joining us again. You were here the last time when we were talking about our Myra Breckenridge show. So what's been the latest with you? Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Um, as to what's new, my Mars application went through. I made round two. Um, Yay! So they cut from, like, 200,000 people to 1,058. So pretty soon I can maybe do, be doing projection booth shows from Mars. Um Hopefully that's okay with you. So how long do you plan to stay on Mars? Two weeks. Have you brought any fruits or vegetables onto the planet? Two weeks. Excuse me? Two weeks. Two weeks. (laughs) As long as we're not doing the Brian De Palma Mars film, I will be fine. Maybe I'll make you watch that one. Maybe maybe that'll be my pick. Um, other than that, uh, jam's been slow. Surprisingly, for a food preservation thing, um, no one wants jam when fruit isn't in season. Um, so winter months are atrocious. And other than that, the reason I got to watching Female Trouble so late was I actually 
January and February, I went through and watched every single Oscar-nominated film except for Missing Picture, which is not available yet, and um, broke that down category by category, which took up an enormous amount of time. But those are kind of the big things going on in my life right now. Yeah, I saw some of your reviews. I like the write-ups, and we'll share those. I'm glad they weren't awful. Thank you. (laughs) How could they be? You're on here with us. You know, we have a high standard around this place. Clearly. We watched Female Trouble this week. That's right. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us. And as always, great to chat with you. And uh, we'll make sure to share some links uh, to the latest stuff that you're working on, including all those write-ups on the Oscar films, which you should read now that Oscar season has finally ended. And we can look forward to actually the MTV Movie Awards. So maybe you should get on the stick with that. We hope. (laughs) All right. So let's get it together and head out on a crime spree. Oh, I meant a beauty spree.